how can you raise the stakes? And that was where I came up with the idea for the train. And I thought, because initially, the initial kind of first few versions of the book were that Theo, you know, actually had to stop performing magic because of the occupation, because of the Second World War, because people couldn't travel and they were grounded in one place. And so he was kind of stuck in one city in Greece and just couldn't perform at all. And I thought, well, actually, what would raise the stakes and create more tension is if they kind of defied these sort of rules and laws and just kept going. And like, what would that look like? What would it look like with them traveling to different countries all over Europe? Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of Friends in Fiction Writer's Block. On this episode, we're chatting with Canadian author Amita Parikh, whose debut novel, The Circus Train, is both an international bestseller and a book of the month pick. And of Special importance to me as a librarian, it was also the number one library reads pick for December 2022, and very deservedly so. Today, we'll be talking to Amita about what it's like to be a debut novelist, how she came up with the idea for this fascinating piece of historical fiction that will surprise you, and what the future holds for this bright new talent in the literary world. I am Ron Block. And I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm really looking forward to chatting with Amita today because I've been a fan of this book since receiving an early copy last February. And I'm so glad not only that it's finally out in the world, but it has been so well received. So when Amita's U.S. editor emailed to ask if I might give it a read, she wrote to me, it encompasses so much of what I love about historical fiction, an inspiring female character who overcomes obstacles, in this case, the biased perception of others due to a physical disability caused by infant polio, young star-crossed lovers, the specter of World War II, and something unique to this story, magic. Yes. I think that sums up this book perfectly. Amita is an author, web developer, and marketer. After graduating from the University of Toronto, she spent the next decade working in the tech startup industry in Europe and Canada. In 2014, she began writing what she hoped would become a book, and as we all know, that's exactly what happened. Amita is joining us today from Toronto, and a huge welcome, Amita. Oh, thank you, Ron. Thank you, Kristen, so much for having me here. I'm so excited. We're excited to talk about this book. <laughs> So I'm dying to know exactly how the book that you began nearly a decade ago finally made it out into the world. I bet that's been a fascinating journey. But first, tell us a little bit about the book. Okay, so The Circus Train tells a story of a young girl named Lena who, due to a bout of infant polio, is now using a wheelchair. She lives on board this fantastical, magical circus train that crisscrosses Europe. And she lives with her father, Theo, who's a widow because Lena's mother died during childbirth. And Lena feels kind of out of place amongst this magical troupe of circus performers, but she's found a love and passion for books and 
particularly science and medicine and things to her that feel like very real, whereas, you know, magic is a little bit kind of out there for her. And so she really gravitates to school and loves learning. But again, she feels out of place. But then one day, all of that changes when she rescues a mysterious stowaway that she finds on board the train. And her life is basically flipped upside down. And that's sort of my little summary. That's a great description. That's, that's <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Okay. Yes. okay. So we always like to then follow up with what is the book really about? What are the themes that you hope the reader absorbs? Yeah. So for me, the big theme is hope and resilience. I guess the big two themes are kind of hope and resilience. I think it is ultimately at its core, a story about overcoming the odds and, you know, pursuing your dreams, whatever they look like for you. And I think in each, all of the characters in the book had their own dreams, right? And that's one thing that I worked really hard on was that everybody has their own wants and needs and desires. And a lot of them are sort of told that they may never get there. But each person, I feel like, was able to pursue through the obstacles and, and like I said, realize their own dreams for themselves by, by the end, whatever that looked like. So, yeah, I would say hope and resilience, but there's also a bit of illusion in there, too. Um, you know, there's magic, there's themes of deception and secrets and lies and things. But, you know, illusion is such a big one for me because there's the whole magic element running through it. But then there's illusion in real life, too, right? And with respect to what this book is, it's sort of like you know, what is real, what isn't, what do we tell people, what do we not tell them? Um, so I would say that was another big theme too. But like, ultimately, I feel like it's an uplifting tale of hope. Beautiful. You know, Amita, I love talking about themes when it comes to historical fiction, because I think, you know, I think sometimes, especially with people who don't read much historical fiction, they think, oh, that's something that happens in the past. It's not very relevant to what we're talking about now. But, um, but these themes are universal. That that idea of illusion, that idea of chasing our dreams, these are all things we can identify with um, in today's world too. I I, I, um, I love that you mentioned that because I, I think that's uh, it, it's just so important to say when it's something historical um, and it's something that really kind of came to the surface in in your book. I think I, I loved yes. it so much. Yeah. Um, you know, but as we mentioned in the opening, Anita, I really genuinely adored this book. I even wrote the book of the month club recommendation for it, which was such I an honor that. to do. Well, and I congratulations. So Gosh, to have a book of the month club pick for your first novel. That is incredible. So congratulations on that. But I had not realized how long you've been working on this book, nearly a decade now. Can you talk to us a little bit about how the idea first came to you? Yeah, I can. So thank you, by the way, Kristen, for you know reading the book and writing the blurb. When I saw you'd written it, I was so overjoyed. And I think in the you know hubbub of everything coming out and not understanding how to manage it as a debut author, I've forgotten to thank so many people. So thank you so much for that. It was it was so kind, and I was so touched. But it yeah, was the my pleasure. A, I mean, oh, thank you. honestly, as an author, it's so it's so gratifying to help help an author of a book you really loved, especially when it's their first book. So I was oh, super thanks. happy to do it and it was so well-deserved. That's amazing. I hope I can pay that forward one day to somebody else. <laughs> but um, but yeah, this was not, uh, I took the scenic route really when it came to writing this novel. It was not an <laughs> overnight success. There were a lot of learnings along the way. So yeah, I started writing this book while I was uh, living in London. I had always wanted to do something creative, um, but I just wasn't sure what that looked like. And I thought, well, you know, novel writing, 
kind of suits the introvert in me and I can do it on my own time. It didn't mean that I had to kind of quit my job and things. And and it was just a fun pursuit, really a hobby for me to do in my spare time. But then I found myself enjoying it. And I thought, well, maybe I want to take some classes. Uh, so I ended up taking a class, a night, some night classes when I was in London. And that really kickstarted everything for me because before that I did, I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, it's intimidating to sit down at a blank page and think, how am I going to write, you know, 300 plus pages into a story? So the course helped me kind of get the basics of storytelling and novel writing. And I thought after that six months was up, I was like, this is it. I'm done. I'm going to finish this book. It's going to sell, <laughs> you know, and, you know, to, by this point, it's like 2015. And that was not what happened at all, right? It took another couple of years. But essentially, the germ of the idea was I, I wanted to tell a story about um, a father and a daughter. Uh, and I wanted there to be magic in it because I've just always loved magic. I mean, I would watch magicians growing up on TV and, you know, even now I'll go on YouTube and I'll look at all of those, you know, America's Got Talent shows and like specifically search for the magicians <laughs> because I just, I love that feeling of being surprised and being amazed and not knowing how something's done. Um, and so I wanted to infuse, uh, that idea of illusion and deception not only with magic, but like I said, with the actual story and the relationships with the characters into a book. Now, I didn't know that it was going to be set um, during the Second World War. I wasn't sure where it would be. But I, um, <clears throat> when, when I was living in London, I ended up uh, you know, walking into a Greek cultural center one day when I was searching for a subway station because I got lost. And I saw that they had a lecture on uh, Greece's involvement in World War II and the following week. So I asked them for directions to the subway, but then I came back the next week because I thought that was so interesting. And growing up in Canada as a kid in school, we really only learned about the Second World War from the Canadian point of view and a bit of the American and British, right? But it was a world war. So I, and I thought, well, oh, there's so much I don't know. And I'm just a huge history buff. So I went back to the lecture and long story short, I was fascinated by, you know, Greece's involvement, their resilience, the power of the people and how they really all came together to unite against, um, you know, the people who were kind of like attacking them. Uh, and so I thought, okay, well, they're, they're going to live in Greece and their story is going to be, you know, in Europe. And, uh, yeah, that's, so that's sort of how the beginnings of it started. Well, uh, you know, I love that, but I, I have also read that this book went through so many evolutions. So like you said, you started with them living in Greece and occupied Greece rather than in continental Europe. Right. Um, and also that the actual train that's in the title didn't even show up until about four years into the writing process. So can wow. you talk? Yeah, which is so interesting. So can you talk a little bit about how it evolved and what other elements, big elements, um, were added that didn't exist at the start? Yeah. So at the start, like I said, I always had uh, Theo and Lena, who are two of the main characters, father and daughter. And I always had um, Alexandre, who is another character that comes into the book later. But those three were there. They've been there from the start and, you know, at kind of like all the way through all the drafts. But the settings and locations and things changed so much. So, yeah, the entire novel was actually set in mostly occupied Greece um, for the first three or so years. 
and then, you know, a little bit in London. And actually there was a part that was in Canada because growing up in Canada, I just really wanted to put a little bit of Canadian history <laughs> into it. But um, I, you know, and I, I sent it out, I, I finished the book and I sent it out to a couple of agents and um, the feedback was, there's something here. It's, it's just not right yet. It's not hitting the right notes. Um, it's kind of not good enough for us to sign. And I just believed that there was a story there, even though I hadn't unearthed it yet. I wasn't ready to sort of give up. And um, I guess after four years, maybe some people would have, but I think I'd reached that point where I thought, well, I've tried so hard that maybe if I just try once more, this will be the time, which again, that's a little bit like the gambler's fallacy, right? Excuse me, like you lose so many times, you think, well, this will be the time, this will be the winning chip. I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. But I just really in my gut felt from the very start, actually, that this was a story to tell and that there would be an audience eventually. Uh, and so essentially, you know, one of the bits of feedback I got was sort of like, well, you know, like, how can you raise the stakes? And that was where I came up with the idea for the train. And I thought, because initially the initial kind of first few versions of the book were that Theo you know, actually had to stop performing magic because of the occupation, because of the Second World War, because people couldn't travel and they were grounded in one place. And so he was kind of stuck in one city in Greece and just couldn't perform at all. And I thought, well, actually, what would raise the stakes and create more tension is if they kind of defied these sort of rules and laws and just kept going. And like, what would that look like? What would it look like with them traveling to different countries all over Europe? And um, and then this I don't even now I don't really know where the idea for the train came from, but I just sort of dreamt up this luscious kind of magical, uh, you know, sumptuous train where they all lived and had these gorgeous costumes. Like I didn't want it to be, uh, you know, a typical kind of red and white striped tent with candied apples type, which I, I love. <laughs> I, I have been to circuses. I went as a kid. Uh, I, I took a bit of inspiration from Cirque du Soleil, uh, which I think does these really takes the circus to another level. You know, they use all these different elements. They'll have water in their shows and ice skating and things. And so I sort of thought, oh yeah, there's so many different things I can do here. And so that's where it came from. I wanted to elevate the circus and, and raise the stakes. So I sent them on a train all across Europe. <laughs> and, and that was kind of the, that was the turning point for me. That was when I really started to kind of get traction with, you know, agents and things. And people thought, okay, now I understand. Now I get it. Like, <laughs> Um, that's incredible because having read the book, um, it is very difficult to imagine it without the train. I mean, that's just, exactly. it, it's just woven into the fabric of the book so well. So mm -hmm. that's a, um, a testament, I think, to how well you took uh, that revision advice and, and, um, you know, went back and really attacked it again and again and again until it was put together exactly the right way. It's really impressive, Amita. Thank you. Agreed. Oh my goodness. I don't, couldn't imagine it without the train. Yeah. What a great turning point though in the story. And it's like, yeah. it wasn't always there. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the elements. And you mentioned a little bit about magic, but I'd like to dive into that just a little bit more. Um, Lena is the daughter, of course, of the headlining illusionist on the circus train. And what inspired you to put the magic of illusion at the center of the novel? And what kind of research did you do to make sure you got every detail right, other than America's Got Talent? <laughs> Sure. Yeah. So like I said, I've always uh, loved magic and illusion ever since I was a little, a little kid. And 
I went through a phase where I tried to learn how to do card tricks and shuffle and things like that. I just thought it would be a cool party trick. Terrible magician. It's definitely not, you know, I'm not quitting my day job. Don't worry. Um, but I, like I said, I remain fascinated by it. I think it's a, I think it's a great escape. It's a fun escape from the mundanity of like everyday life. And uh, it's, it's a really joyful feeling to, to be surprised. And then, like I said, I wanted to weave that theme of illusion and deception throughout the whole book. So I already mentioned um, the relationships and sort of the secrets that we tell people, which to Kristen's earlier point that she made about historical fiction not necessarily being about something that happened in the past and right. we leave it there, it's actually, I think these themes are very universal and they carry through to the modern day individual. Um, but then the other part with the illusion was also you talking about World War II and, you know, the Nazis and things that went on. There was a lot of illusion and deception there as well. Right. Um, yeah. And it's interesting because I think when we look back on it, we know what happened. But when you're when these people were in the thick of it, nobody was being honest about what was going on. Yeah. And they didn't know they may have had an idea or started, you know, as time went on and the years went by hearing things. And but yeah. the, you, nobody outright went out and said, this is what we're doing. And we're, you know, this is we're going to like harm all of these people and try and wipe out an entire race. Like nobody explicitly yeah. sort of came out and said that that's what they're doing. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so there was the illusion element of that uh, as well in the novel. And I just wanted to tie them all together. That is such a great point. And I love Lena's um, kind of observation of it when, uh, when we meet um, the stowaway and she kind of explains the science behind all of the illusion and stuff. And so it kind of represents the, the thought process of all the bigger things that you were just talking about so well. Yeah, and sorry, I didn't I didn't fully answer that question, but you asked about the research that I did. So I really kind of dove down the hole of, you know, the golden age of the golden age of magic in America to me was one of like my favorite parts of researching this. So I just <laughs> went to town, you know, went to libraries. There are a lot of um, magician societies as well, believe it or not. So I would kind of contact them and like, could you point me to any books you have or resources online? And you know, I just learned about you know Harry Houdini and like. Keller and David Devon, and there, there were just magicians all over the world um, who were doing incredible things. And, and that was a real joy. But it was it was very much just me sitting down and reading. There were a couple of YouTube videos as well. But a lot of that stuff, because it was in the past, it's, it's not on YouTube now, right? And right. so um, it was a lot of just like, hey, I got to go to a reference library and find an old book and read about how it's done. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> well, Amita, I would also love to ask you about the character of Lena, who uses a wheelchair after a childhood bout with polio. So her father is very protective of her. And a big part of Lena's journey within this book is one of her coming into her own and taking charge of her own life. Can you talk a little bit about creating the character of Lena? Yeah, I can. So uh, Lena is, I, ju I just love her. I think she's such a great character. Mm, I, um, I love I think one of the things I love most about Lena and what I really tried to do when I was writing her and creating her was we talk a lot about strong female characters these days and as we should, right? I think it's so inspiring and it's so wonderful to see women have agency in so many different situations. Um, but also I, I'm an introvert and I grew up being kind of, you know, very shy and not being the one that wanted the attention and things like that. I was always quiet in school. I never raised my hand and I remember, you know, in, 
you know, parent-teacher interviews, my parents would kind of come home and they'd say like, oh, well, you, your grades are really good, but you don't talk. Like, you don't say anything. And they're like, well, it's not that it's not that I don't know. I just don't want to, right? Um, and so I, I find that a lot of the times the, you know, the strong female characters that I, I'll read about will be kind of the loud and outgoing ones and kind of like staking their claim. And that's so good. But I also think that you can be quiet and you can be maybe a little more gentle and you don't need to be loud to be heard type thing, right? And so that, that was really what I wanted Lena to be. And also, you know, when she's, she's very young when the book starts. And I think when you're that young, I mean, I remember just being a little bit unsure of myself. And I think that's yeah. fair for any child. You're trying to find your place in the world. Um, I certainly wouldn't have had, you know, the confidence that I do now as a grown woman that I, d- that I did at, at eight but that's okay. I think that's normal because like I said, we're all figuring ourselves out and discovering. So I wanted to give her, um, you know, this quiet confidence because she's also not meek, right? She knows what she likes. Mm -hmm. She's very passionate about school. She's unapologetic about that. And she actually doesn't feel like she has to change herself to really fit in with the circus performers. Um, And I think her father, even though he is overprotective, he, he at least kind of gives her the freedom to pursue what he sees her liking and encourages it, right? So, yeah, I think there's a lot of nuance to Lena, and I love her journey. I love her her growth and her kind of, um, you know, coming of age. I think it's, yeah. I'm, I'm biased. I wrote the book, but I think, <laughs> I think it's a really beautiful, I think it's well, a really beautiful journey. It is. I agree. <laughs> I agree, too. So um, I want to ask a little bit about um, adding, uh, is it Alexandre? Alexandre, I think, or yeah, I'm <laughs> um, adding adding um, his character to the story because it does propel and change Lena in many ways. So, how did that come about, and how did it enhance your storytelling? Yeah, so like I said, when I started the story, I, I always had Theo and Lena, and then I, I did actually always have um, Alex as well. I think in my gut, I knew this this was going to be a little bit of sort of a coming of age romance as well, like that, you know, that young love sort of friendship turning into potentially something else. I don't want to give away too much, but, um, but yeah, so, and, and really as well from a story, storytelling point of view, it was that idea of kind of raising the stakes, you know, you go back to basic um, plot structure and characterization and you think, okay, well, you've got this protagonist and, you know, you maybe you've got an antagonist, but it's, you've got somebody who comes in that that maybe will create a bit of tension in another way. And with, with Alex being from a Jewish background, that is sort of built in, right? Because he's kind of on the run. Um, but really, I wanted Lena to have uh, somebody that she could sort of grow with and that could help her, help her see who she really was kind of for herself, um, you know, because I think I think they both go through their own growth stages. And again, I don't want to reveal too much, but they both have their demons that they're kind of grappling with. Um, And like I said, I think they help each other sort of, uh, you know, ultimately achieve what it is they're both looking for at the end of the day. I love that. Um, And I'm glad we're not going to talk about spoilers of things because so much of the things we learn are exactly what we were talking about, illusion, things that people hide from others and how they um, how it's revealed uh, as the story goes on. And it's it's just brilliant. Um, So you talked earlier about um, maybe being open to some feedback and changing your path and things. That's a really hard thing to do. And I think, as you mentioned, a lot of people could just give up at that point. What was the drive for you to keep going and keep listening to this feedback and and really kind of going at it again? 
Yeah, feedback is, it's often very difficult to receive as an author. I mean, I certainly still struggle with it um, because you've spent so much time creating something and nobody really wants to hear that it's not good enough at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Or not necessarily hitting the right notes that it needs to in order to progress forward. Yeah. Um, so it's hard, but I think even with with the with the process of, of writing the book, I just sort of was self-aware enough to, to know what I didn't know and to recognize that I'm coming into this as someone with very little training and, you know, doesn't work in publishing. Um, these people are professionals who have taken the time to get back to me, to offer me insights, um, you know, and that's the thing that I think uh I would, I would, I would say to any aspiring writer or even writer who's writing things like, you know, it's, I, I still will get feedback from editors, things about new projects and whatnot that, oh, maybe you could change this and that. And initially I'll think, oh, but I thought it was really great. But then it's like, oh, well, actually, if you kind of take a few days and you go back and you think about it, you realize why they've done it. But yeah, they're, they're professionals and they want you to succeed. Um, no agent or editor wants you to fail, um, even though it might feel like that when you're on the receiving <laughs> end of things, right? But, um, but yeah, no, I was self-aware enough to kind of say like, okay, well, I have this goal of wanting to publish a book. And I did always, like I said, think that there was just a story here. I didn't know exactly what it would look like, but I just, for I had this intuition that it would just work somehow, some way, and I would figure it out. And um, and that's actually something that we kind of learn in in the technology world, uh, you know, working in startups, it's, you're just creating something from scratch, right? And often your first product or the first kind of version of an app you release, it's not going to do what you want it to do, or people will give you feedback and you'll think, oh my God, that's terrible. Why did I do that? And <laughs> you'll, you'll be forced to change and you can let it stop you, or you can kind of take it and think, okay, I'm going to go at it from another angle or like there's there's no one way to reach a destination. There's many different routes you can take. And I think if you're willing to kind of, you know, put in the work, and I'm not saying it's going to be easy, it won't, but it'll make you a better kind of writer and creator in the long run. Um, you know, if you're willing to sort of listen to that feedback and take it on board, it's possible to be successful. Yeah. So well said. Yes, well, absolutely. Absolutely well said. You know, it's it's interesting that you say that because we were talking a couple of weeks ago on uh, Friends in Fiction about how, you know, and collectively between the four Friends in Fiction authors, I think we've written more than 70 books or more than 75 books. So we've been doing this yeah. for a long time. Oh my and, goodness. But we, but we all just a still, couple, just a few, <laughs> but, but we all still get every single time we get an editorial letter. We're like, what? No, yeah, how could you say that to me? And, you know, yes. we, we were saying like, you take to the fainting couch and like, Oh, what was me? They want me to change. <laughs> and, and then, and then you read it again and think, Oh yes, of course, all those points are correct. I do need yeah. to change those. A hundred percent. So it, it is sort of hard to let go of um, of the things that you thought worked, but you have to open yourself to those other perspectives. That yes, that was such such a good point and so well said by you. So you, you. you mentioned working um, in the technology world also. So I'm curious how you managed to carve out the time to work on this book, um, including all of the research and all of the revising, while also working in another field. And I, I'm assuming just from what you said that you're doing that again. So can you talk to us about finding? the time in a busy schedule to write a book like this? 
Yeah, it's it's not easy. I mean, it's it's easier for me, I think, because, you know, I I don't yet have dependents or, you know, children to kind of think about. So I am in that way. I think um, I have more time than a lot of other writers that I know. But um, but yeah, I do work full time and it's something that I enjoy and it's something I'm I'm really grateful for. I have a wonderful team of people I work with. Um, even past companies I've worked at, my coworkers were always very supportive of my book's dreams. And actually, when I was over in London, a bunch of my old coworkers who I hadn't seen in years, they all came out to my... I was fortunate enough to be able to go over to London to launch my book there because I'd worked there for a couple of years and where it's, it's where I started writing this. They all came out to support me. They all bought copies of it. Um, so it was very touching. But yes, it's it's not easy, but it is possible. Um, and I, I do think it might be more common than we think mm. because you know when you're starting out in writing, you just don't know what's going to Yes. work. And, you know, no, it's, it's not a job that you can go to a publisher and say, can you kind of pay me an annual salary to write books? And <laughs> I mean, if anybody sees a listing for that, please let me know. I would love to apply. I'm, I'm right there with you. I want it too. <laughs> but, um, you know, you, it's just, I think it's like anything. It's like going to the gym. It's like, you know, starting a business, uh, maybe recording a, a musical album or any kind of sort of passion or interest that somebody has, we make time for the things we want to do. Um, and for me, I, I had grown up doing, um, a lot of sports and, you know, Kristen, one reason why I'm so excited to be talking to you is I know you've got a big sports background and yeah. sports reporting and your <laughs> past and things like that. So, but, um, but yeah, no, I grew up, uh, you know, figure skating and cross country running and things. And I mean, we had practices every morning and then after school and then competitions on weekends. And so it was just sort of ingrained in me to, and I loved it. I mean, there was nowhere else I wanted to be, but in an ice rink or on a track. I mean, it was just the most fun to me. And I did that in university as well. So full course load and, you know, away at competition. So you just become really good at time management because you have to, and you think, well, this is what I want to do. And, um, it just brings me a lot of joy and you make it work. So I kind of took the same approach. I thought, okay, well, if when I used to skate, I'd be up at, you know, 5.30 or so, and I would do my, like, hour session, and then I would go into my chem lab at university or whatnot. I can do the same thing with work. I can get up early, and I can write for half an hour or 45 minutes, and then I can go into my job. And sometimes I would use my lunch break to write. Like, I'd be a half hour, and I would maybe do 200 words. But then you're 200 words closer to the end of a story. Yes. Um, and I would do weekends as well. stuff. But um, I never, I, it was really rare for me to sit down and kind of do like eight hour stretches. Like that didn't yeah. really work for me. It was just kind of little chunks um, when I could consistently. And it ended up kind of paying off. Um, yeah, it yes. took, but it, it, it does take time, right? I mean, I don't think I could ever write a book in four months. That's just not something that I could realistically do given my current schedule. Um, because I, you know, I, I still work full time and things. And like I said, I, I feel very lucky to have a job that allows me um, the balance to kind of do both. Um, because again, I know some jobs are so intense and they can be like 16 hours a day or so. And I don't know what I would do if that was mine, but you know, I've got pretty stable kind of nine to five things. And I'm like, well, it wouldn't be a stretch for me to just write from maybe 8 a.m. to 8.45, and then I can get on with the rest of my day, and I'm okay with that. I love that. Do you have one piece of quick advice for people listening out there who might think, oh, I've always wanted to write a book, but I just don't have the time? Do you have one little nugget of wisdom for them? 
yeah, I would say just start, just, just start, just start with 10 minutes. That's it. 10, 10 minutes. Everybody is 10 minutes. I love that. Yeah. We have so many aspiring writers that listen to the podcast and you just gave them kind of a masterclass on yes. getting started. So thank yes. you for that. It was really, really interesting. And what great advice. And um, I'm going to ch um, change just a little bit and then direct people to your website, amitaparik.com. And that's A-M-I-T-A-P-A-R-I-K-H.com. And you have a little essay on there called 10 Fun Facts About the Circus Train which I encourage like everybody to go check out. Um, there's some great photos, some fascinating insights into your book. Um, but specifically, I want to ask about one of the 10 things. You mentioned that you base some of the costumes and sets in the circus train on your experience as a dance student. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So I was very fortunate as, you know, a kid growing up, my parents enrolled my brothers and I in a lot of different sports, like I said, and artistic um, pursuits. So I did, you know, piano and we did like, band at school and things. And I was very lucky to go to a performing arts school in, um, in high school. So um, throughout high school, I was I was a dance major at a school in Toronto. Um, and we had a, a ballet studio, gorgeous studio in our actual high school. And we had an amazing stage. Wow. And so we would kind of, um, you know, do an hour of ballet, and then we would go join the rest of the students for math and science and everything else. But it was amazing. It was it was just I loved every second of it. And yeah, I was so inspired by all of the costumes and the musical sets and, and, and the set design of, of the theater shows and the dance productions we all did. Um, and also we would, we like the, our teachers would take us to see kind of the National Ballet of Canada performances. And I just fell in love with all of it. And I think things like lighting and the material a costume is made from and right. the way you know, the colors look, that all informs a performance, right? And you may not think yes. it does, but in the abs, if you remove all those things, then you realize like, oh, wow, the lighting really made a difference. And, yeah. and so I just, I, I pulled upon, like I said, elements of, of my childhood when I was creating the costumes and things. And, you know, sometimes it'll just be one little detail in the book. It'll be one line in the book, but that will have taken me kind of pages and pages to get to because I was thinking about every costume that I wore or everything that I would see growing up as a kid, you know, and wanting to put it in. Um, but then you kind of have to pare down. But yeah, you never know where inspiration is going to come from or how your childhood or, you know, your hobbies as, as a kid or teenager will inform life for you later on. Absolutely. So um, there's kind of a balance there, deciding what of yourself to put into the characters in the book and, and what to kind of change. So I, I could imagine like it's probably very um, it's very uh, tempting to just say, oh, I'm going to just tell my own story. But it, um, you have to really pull back and do it. So can you talk about that um, decision? Yeah, Ron, that's a really that's a really great point that you brought up because whenever people ask me, is there any of you in the book, I always say no. But you know, just from what we've been talking about, I'm like, <laughs> right. well, actually, there's probably a lot of me in the book. I just I just don't really realize it. Um, yeah, you know, I didn't want to write a story about myself like overtly. Um, I know a lot of um, a lot of first time authors maybe do, and that's completely fair and that's fine. Um, but I, I just wanted to tell a magical kind of fantastical tale of hope that transported people somewhere else. Um, and having said that, though, like I said, I think there are elements uh, of my own personality and from things that I've done in the past that made its way in. So mm -hmm. to your point, you know, I talk about uh, 
the piece La Bayadere. It's a ballet um, and it features in uh, the circus train as one of kind of like the shows that they're doing. Um, and that was my favorite, favorite piece that we ever performed when I was in school. And I loved the costumes and I loved the sets. And so I kind of snuck it in there a little bit. Um, <laughs> and then even things like Lena and her tenacity and things, I, I, I feel like I always actually usually, not always, but I, I think more often than not, I say like, well, Lena isn't me because a lot of people think that she's supposed to be me. I'm like, no, she's not. I mean, different time period, different challenges. Yeah. I did not go through, you know, polio or, or anything like that. I have worked a lot with kids who have disabilities. My older brother has a disability, but you know, it was never informed like for me personally, but I think her tenacity and her like interest in science and medicine, those kind of come from me. So there's probably a little bit of me in every character, <laughs> um, knowingly or unknowingly, you know, it's like we try and not put ourselves in things, yeah. but I think it can be a little hard to, especially when you're writing your first book, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Finally, Amita, we would love to hear what's next for you. Do you have another novel in the works? I'm working on something. It is taking me a little bit longer than I would have hoped. I think <laughs> while I did learn a lot from writing the first one, you know, there's so much research that goes into historical fiction novels yeah. that that tends, for me anyway, that tends to take up the bulk of the time mm -hmm. because not only will you, and I, Kristen, I don't know what your process is, but not only will you spend time researching, then it's, you've kind of got to cull down all of that, right? You can't, it's, you'll spend hours trying to figure out okay, well, this is what it is. Like, I'll give you an example. The book I'm working on right now is set between Paris and New York, kind of like, you know, early 20th century. And I have a scene with a stove in France. And I, I mean, I never thought I would know so much about French stoves in <laughs> 1901. But just ask me if you have an antique French stove, I can probably fix it for you. <laughs> so I have to do all of that research for this one scene where it's literally two lines. And yet it took days to, yeah. because I wanted to see if I could make it as accurate as possible. Yes. So yeah, so the research does take a lot, but yeah, I'm working on something that's, um, you know, it's a dual timeline story. It's set between early 20th century Paris and modern day New York. It's still early stages for me, so I'm not sure where it's going to go but I'm excited about it. It's bringing me a lot of joy. And I think that's all that I can really ask for at this point. Well, I absolutely cannot wait to read mm -hmm. it. My next novel is also set in Paris and New York. So. I know. I'm so, I was so excited. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize it was also set in New York. Yeah. So. Oh, my yeah, gosh. Okay. The, yeah. Oh, well, now I'm even more excited for that to come out. That's oh, in June, right? It releases? Yes, it's in June. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Yes. You wait. and I are on the same wavelength, obviously. So I'm excited Amazing. to read yours. Hurry up and finish it, Amita. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll call you in five years, given my, <laughs> given my track record. <laughs> well, I cannot wait. So, Amita, it has been so lovely to have you with us today. And before we let you go, we've already mentioned amitaparak.com. And that, again, that's Parak, P-A-R-I-K-H. And the extra resources readers can find there. Beyond that, is there anything else you can tell readers about where they can find you online or on the road in the coming months? Yeah. So I don't know if I have any events coming up soon. But if I do, I actually do need to update my website, which I'll be doing in the next couple of weeks. There'll be an event section there. You can probably find it. And also there'll be a section that lists all, you know, podcast interviews and things like that. I do have an Instagram account and a Twitter account. 
I have been not great at updating either of them. I'm sort of taking a little bit of a break right now. I actually needed a little mm. rest from sort of the hoopla and everything afterwards. But I tend to be more active on Instagram if I'm active at all. So my handle is at Amita underscore Peric. So you could connect with me there. I love hearing from readers and I do my best to get back to everyone, even if it takes me a couple of days or weeks sometimes. <laughs> so totally understood though, all the, the concentration when the book comes out and the attention and being number one library reads pick, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought, oh, I just want, I wanted to, I enjoyed it. I loved it. I had a great right. debut year. I just wanted to take a little bit of a rest before yes. I get ready for whatever's next. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well we need to. You need to restore. Yeah. Okay, Amita, we're so glad that you joined us today. We loved hearing about your journey to getting this novel out into the world. And I hope our listeners feel as inspired as I do after hearing about how you kept plugging away at the book that you ended up caring so much about. And so do we as readers. And it's epic. It's sweeping. It's everything. And it's full of so many surprises that you think you're not going to get as you're reading it, but you certainly do. The end result's just magical, and obviously readers agree. The Circus Train, along with all of our past guest books, are available at the friendsandfictionbookshop.org page. A great way to save a little money and support indie booksellers. Thanks again, Amita, and thanks to all of you for tuning into Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. If you're enjoying our conversations, please tell a friend. We will see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.